Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. So the country is so tiny, smaller than New Jersey, but it has green hills and the coast and the desert and lush valleys. So it allowed to a very rich agricultural experience. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today in the show, I have an amazing conversation with Nama Sheffi. Nama is the founder of the Jewish Food Society, a nonprofit organization that works to preserve, celebrate, and revitalize Jewish cuisine to build and promote a meaningful connection to Jewish and Israeli culture. On this episode, Nama and I catch up about all things we we talk about Jewish cuisine in America and abroad, and really we talk about what she's cooking this summer and into fall. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nama. Nama Sheffi, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. So fun being here. I, I've wanted to have you on for a while. I've been a huge fan of what you've done at the Jewish Food Society in America, and we'll get into that. But also, I was able to visit a thief in Tel Aviv about a month ago. And after that visit, I was like right away on DM. I was like, please come on the show. I want to hear all about it. So tell me, what is a thief and what have you built there, really? Sure. So thank you so much, by the way, that you you came to visit us. So ASIF is the Culinary Institute of Israel, and it has a few exciting components. It's not a restaurant, even though we have a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's not a library, even though we have a public um, library, quite interesting, with oh, more yeah. than 2000s volume. Um, we also have an art gallery with rotating culinary exhibition, a test kitchen, and an educational vertical farm. So oh. it's really, you know, it's it's a lot of things. Um, yeah. So. It's, it's just, when you walk in, it looks like a restaurant. I mean, it has this like a bustling room and, and it has um, beautiful food being presented. But then you, you've got a store there. And, and to me, and Adina Sussman tipped me off, is like you're getting, you know, Zatar from Janine. You're getting, um, you know, dairy products from the far north and the Golan it's, I love that component. So tell me a little bit more about that store. Yes, it's very important for us to draw attention and really give respect to the people and small producers yeah. who are creating this very unique product and to also tell their stories. So as if the name in Hebrew, the immediate translation means harvest, mm-hmm. but it also means curation in the context of the gallery, Mm -hmm. um, collection in the context of the library, but most importantly, asifamim means bringing people together, like quite literally, and and, and that's really the mission. Yeah, and it it does have a sense of community. I I witnessed an exhibit uh, about workers' restaurants throughout Israel, and 
um, the way, not just from kibbutz and from the history of the kibbutznik cuisine, but also workers who are migrant workers who've come from other parts of the world to, to harvest. And I think totally hearing you about community, there's lots of community in the space. I, I love it. How did it, how did you get the, the idea for it and how does it, how is it funded? So it's funny. The idea, first of all, came during the pandemic. So we created this, we dreamed up this entire project over Zoom. Like, I mean, working with the art- architects, designers, putting together the library, hiring all mm-hmm. these, you know, all, all my team, everything was over Zoom. Um, before Asif, the space at a, a restaurant, like actually a really lovely restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's called Lillian Bloom 28 with an interesting concept. And when the founder of the project reached out to me and asked me, what do you think we should do in this space? I thought that Tel Aviv, you know, don't need another restaurant. Like there are so many great restaurants mm-hmm. in Tel Aviv and there is so much interest in the local food culture and for a good reason. And I thought that there is an opportunity to really dream big. And that's what we did. Yeah, you really did dream big because you have a vertical farm, as you mentioned, on the roof. That 2000, the cookbooks, it's one of the largest collections I would think in Israel, like for cookbooks. Um, I just think it's it's one of those things that if you're in Tel Aviv and you want like a taste of the cuisine of Israel, you're going to get it there. Yes, that was the idea. And and again, we are not trying to define what Israeli cuisine is. We're really, we're trying to provide a space for a conversation yep. to experience, to taste, really like to provide literally like a place at the table. Yep. And also with the library, you know, it wasn't like my own, ta- my own taste in books or my team's um, curation. We reached out to many interesting people, you know, chefs, scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, we really wanted to invite multiple perspectives. So yeah. talking about people like Claudia Roden, Anissa Hilu, Sami Tamimi, um, Dara Goldstein, yep. and, and Adina and Zussman. Adina, and, you got Dever first as your editorial director as well. Yes. Working yes. in both Asif and Jewish Food Society. Uh, has written much for taste and loved loved Debra. Uh, loved Debra. Very, and yep. yeah. Let's back up and talk about your life. Growing up on a kibbutz, you're a kibbutznik, which <laughs> I think is a word that maybe is unfamiliar. <laughs> what does that word mean? And what is life like on a kibbutz growing up for you? So growing up in a kibbutz was pretty idyllic. Honestly, we were walking barefoot <laughs> for most of our days, picking pomegranates from the trees um, you know, when I was 14, I moved to live by myself in what we called youth room. Mm-hmm. Like literally, you know, all the kids are moving to live without their parents. So it was it was pretty nice. But not everything was idyllic. Okay, so I have a lot of questions. <laughs> my father-in-law, uh, my Abba, is, uh, is from the kibbutz as well. He's much older. Um, and it seems like there's idyllic moments, but it's it's challenging living on a, commun- a communal world. You're being separated from your family at 14. That's yes, and or or many times before when yeah. you're a baby. Of course, when you're a baby too. Yeah, young my sister. Age. Yeah, so yes, there are many. There are beautiful things, and there are more challenging things for sure. Like, um, you know, we ate all of our meals in the communal dining room. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
And again, the community part was lovely. Mm-hmm. The menu? <laughs> Let's go <laughs> over it. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty bland. Really? Mostly Ashkenazi, yeah. Wow. And food was fuel, you know. Yeah. Stories were divorced from the food. That's... And interesting because it's you know shtetl life you know stories are passed down repeatedly from the old world from Europe and if it's an Ashkenazi route you would imagine there would be stories about food but clearly not no the food wasn't good <laughs> I mean there were a few except you know like in the Hadarochel, of course there were a few things that were you know more exciting um but generally speaking it really meant that You know, as fuel. Are we talking uh, about like rice and we're talking about grains? I mean, what, what is so... So and- every day, Ed, you know, it was repetitive. Yeah. So we're talking about um, calf's liver almost every day, fried. Let, That was like the basic... Let that sink in, listener. <laughs> a, 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 t- a 10-year-old child eating calf's liver every single day. <laughs> yes, it was... This is um, stuffed peppers, uh, macaroni, but... Not, yeah. you know, not in a good way. Um, <laughs> no one wants macaroni in a bad way. <laughs> no, really the highlight for me as like a four years old was the herring cart. Yeah? Yeah, because, because it's not for everyone's taste. You know, I was able to exchange some moments, some stories with the herring man, who, mm-hmm. you know, this... older person who really loved his job and the conversations about this delicate delicacy yeah and and I'm sure he came from somewhere in Lithuania or, or any had stories about the old world exactly so that was like a little corner but I started to be to get very interested about food outside of the kibbutz and you You need to understand I grew up in the 80s so we didn't have our own car we shared mm-hmm. 17 Subaru car yeah car is in the kibbutz and you really needed a good reason to take one like yeah. to go to the doctor or to see relatives yeah it wasn't like going to the mall and buying no. you know the Bobby Brown um, <laughs> single no no so but luckily my parents really supported my curiosity and secured a car every time we wanted to go to the Yemenite quarter in Tel Aviv or to the neighboring um, our village yeah or you know so food really became you know like a way to explore my identity yeah. and you And see really what Israel was all about. So you end up at Tel Aviv University and you're studying English lit. And I'd like to get a sense of when you're living in Tel Aviv, how does food explode in your brain? Because clearly your, your brain is changing and you're seeing the world in front of you of, of what Israel and an urban Israel has to offer. Sure. So it's actually started earlier for me because I went to this special high school for the arts in Tel Aviv. So my mom, you know, I, so I traveled every day to Tel Aviv mm-hmm. to study film in high school. So, cool. Yeah. That, wow. That was, who, are you, who are some of the directors that you were really obsessed with while in, while in school? Um, I mean, it was, you know, Godard and all of like a lot yeah. of French. French New Wave, uh, yeah. Um, Dogma. Um, a lot of American directors. I grew up with New York in my mind, you know, yeah. watching Scorsese and Woody Allen and others. 
listening to hip hop. So New York mm-hmm. was so much on my mind already back then. Yeah. But going back to your question, um, it was really when I moved to New York that I kind of changed my storytelling medium really from filmmaking to food. Really? Yeah. What caused the change? What was it? Was there a moment? Was there an event? Was there a job that you took that, that, that switched it over? And then I want to hear a little bit more about some of your early food work. Sure. Um, so it was a few things, but one very, you know, fundamental event happened actually after I moved to New York, but in Israel when I met my husband and it was the first time I attended a Shabbat dinner at his grandmother place. Mm. And it was very special because, you know, he said, you're going to meet my entire family, 20 people in this tiny little one bedroom apartment outside of Tel Aviv. And everyone arrived and Nona made room for all of the guests, all of the family. And I was absolutely taken by her generosity and by all of these really incredible spread of dishes. There were albondigas and like stuffed tomatoes and many types of eggplant salads and many more dishes. But... More than the flavors, I was taken by the stories behind each of these dishes that really told her life story. It's interesting. There's a lot of, I'm sure, examples for listeners out there who maybe their own family is not as food focused. And then they enter into a partner or a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you a world opens up to them. There's a real food, like a food family, so to speak. And, and there's a lot of storytelling around the food. And I, I've known many who've had a partner or somebody in their life and it's just been an awakening. It sounds like you had a similar situation. Yes, absolutely. And she was old at the time. And it was important for me, again, back with my filmmaking yeah. uh, mind to protect to protect her culinary heritage. And, if, you know, without even knowing it, she planted the seeds for Jewish yes. Food Society. So before I get to the Jewish Food Society and kind of root the conversation in America, I want to continue Israel and talking about the country. And I, I have just a couple questions for our listeners. When you're visiting Israel for the food in particular, which many of our listeners, they're obsessed with food travel as I am. And where would you, where would you suggest, how would you visit Israel in your words? You start with Tel Aviv because the energy in Tel Aviv, I think it's so captivating and so wild. It is so dope. I think Eliza and I talked about it on a previous episode. It is extremely fun. There's, it is such a queer city. It's like 30% of residents to identify as queer. It is, there's art, there's extremely hot people walking around everywhere. Yeah. The beach, the market, nightlife. So I would spend a few days, observe all of these energies. While when I had, in, you know, after a few days, I would rent a car and go by the coast to Haifa and from there to the Galilee. And I would go east to the Sea of Galilee mm. and and then down to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, I would go to the Dead Sea. I will experience some of the desert and then back to Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. 
beautiful. What a, I mean, I'm just kidding. I want to go back. It's such <laughs> a should. deep place. Now, is there a, is there a cuisine or is there a food in, in Israel? I know it's a broad question, but I just want to get your opinion that maybe we are not writing about in America. We're not seeing. First of all, I feel that people think about Israel as a desert. And I think that's very crucial because while, yes, of course, some of Israel is a desert, we have the climate is so diverse. Mm -hmm. So just to give you an example of that, let's imagine we are in Washington Heights and we mm -hmm. hop on the subway and we go all the way down with the express train to Canal Street. This distance is similar to the distance between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. So the country is so tiny, smaller mm -hmm. than New Jersey, yeah. and but it has green hills and the coast and the desert and lush valleys. So it allowed to a very rich agricultural experience to, you know, so winter and summer crops can be grown at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that if you go to the Shuk and you'll see all of this, you know, bounty and and like this fresh produce, I think that's something that I don't know if people are aware how much of a vegetable forward. Oh my gosh, yeah. And and not just any vegetables, but cucumbers that taste like the the greenest and the freshest that you'll ever have, or of course, citrus in this in the winter, pomegranates. Then you get into the herbs and the and the herb. I mean, I think I was one of those folks who didn't understand. And my wife, whose father's from there, is is telling me that dairy is better than anywhere in the world. And I'm shunning. I'm like, no, no way. Like, you know, I'm from. I went to college in Wisconsin. It's really good there. But honestly, when you go and the the richness of the products is to your point is is just uh, incredible. Yeah. So. I think that's really, you know, and how important breakfast or, you know, having salad for breakfast. Um, it, it, it just like, I don't want to single out one no. dish. It just like, I feel that, um, you know, Israeli chefs and cooks really think outside the box. Yeah. They think outside the box because we don't have a box. Yeah, it's it's such a new it's a new place. I mean, there the box is is barely you know dry, you know, and and of course we can't say this this conversation with the subtext of it's it's a it's a place with highly political uh, conversations, and you know we could have that conversation now, but um, I feel like I would like to focus on the cuisine, but you know it is a new country, right, and it is hard to define it. Yes, and I think that's what makes it so exciting and interesting to witness like such an exciting cuisine information in front of our eyes. Yeah, it is. Let's move to America because I think the Jewish Food Society addresses an American audience and you founded that as well. I'd like to get a sense of your your goal with the Jewish Food Society um, and how did that come to be? Sure. So the Jewish Food Society is a nonprofit organization and we are building the largest archive of family recipes and the histories that are attached to them. So this is really the core of our work. And to bring it, to bring this archive to life, we host all sorts of creative public programs. So 
They could be Passover seders. They could be pop-up dinners, educational panels, cooking classes, and our flagship event, which is a storytelling event named Schmaltzy. Yeah, and there's a podcast as well. We get a link to that in the show notes. Yes. Wonderful podcast. I, I, it's just really terrific, really well done. Thank you. Yeah, um, highly recommend it. And, and you just had a big Passover event, it sounds like, a big seder. Yes, a party. A party of 80 people <laughs> in Chinatown. Sounds, sounds great. Now, I'd like to get a sense of what's missing from this Jewish food discourse that we have. We have a lot of guests who have Jewish identity, who may be religious, who may be not. But I'd like to get a sense from you, what's missing from the conversation, if anything? Still diversity. I truly believe that. Um, and I'll go even before Jewish Food Society. Um so, you know, when I moved to New York and we talked about it before, I felt that people already assume something about me because I'm Israeli. You know, I used to take my Jewishness for granted when I was mm. in Israel. And then when I moved here, I felt that when people think about Jewish food, they still think about a very narrow perception yeah. of Jewish food and then Jewish life. Usually people. Ashkenazi, usually old European, usually with a patriarchy kind of centric. Exactly. And Jewish people lived for thousands of years from, you know, in all corner of the world in places as far apart as Brazil, Morocco, Poland, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and really created their own micro-cuisines that were a result of this constant negotiation between Kashrut and Shabbat and Jewish holidays and the local food traditions. So this cuisine is so diverse and rich, and it was important for me to communicate it. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at these old recipes, these old family recipes, I would imagine they're coming from all over uh, the world. Um, I'd like to get a sense of a couple recipes that maybe you've published or, or you've focused on with your work that maybe reflect a type of Jewish cuisine that maybe we're not expecting, that maybe outside of that Euro-centric gaze that we typically get, it gets thrown into sometimes. Sure. And again, there are the recipes. And then what's even more important for me is the histories and like these fabrics of lives yeah. that are hidden there. Um, so, you know, for Yom Kippur, right? So many people here in America break the fast, if if they fast, with bagels and lax or something like mm -hmm. that, that is store-bought. Um, last year, we featured this Yemenite cook, Yemenite family that serve Zom, which is a warm yogurt soup served with hog and saluf, which mm -hmm. is a bread. So this is something that you would never, I think, think about as Jewish food, mm -hmm. right? Or it, you, you won't, you just won't be aware of that. So it's it's important for us to share these stories. Another example, you know, we all know challah, obviously. Um, the special bread for Shabbat, but there are so many other breads and one in particular just comes to mind because, again, it highlights this beautiful story of a chef, an Ethiopian chef who now runs um, a restaurant in Harlem called Zion Cafe. Mm. 
And this woman, BJ Barani, shared with us her story. And it's it's just incredible. And I don't want, to, like really short, she's talking about how she left her life in Ethiopia when she was four years old wow. and walked by foot and by horse to Israel over three years. My goodness, wow. And every Friday night they stopped their very dangerous and challenging journey to bake dabo, the the bread, the Ethiopian bread for Shabbat. Mm. Let's talk about Shabbat a little bit. I mean, that story is, I, I will link to in the show notes. I'm sure there's a, the, an article on, on your website yes. and I'll, I'll link to that. Thank um, you. Let's talk about Shabbat because I think Adina Sussman is going to be publishing a book in the fall about Shabbat, about this tradition that happens every Friday night into Saturday night. And I think in Israel, if you're visiting or you're visiting a Jewish community in America, you're going to get a sense that it's, it's a different uh, tradition. It's, it's really, it's a disconnecting. I'd like to get your take on how you celebrate Shabbat and how Shabbat is important to you. Sure. And I can't wait for Adina's book. Adina is Beautiful. on our board and she's a dear friend and I love her, like this combination of casualness and, and knowledge, yeah. you know, that she brings. Well said. Nice way to peg Adina. Because <laughs> there is a casualness and and, a, and that, this is Adina Sussman love out right now, but like she has such kindness and casualness, but then you go into like a real, like just rigorous academic kind of study of things, but she's also cool as hell. So absolutely, yeah, my kind of person. <laughs> um so you described it very well, um, but again, in Israel, Friday night is Shabbat dinner on Friday, that happens on Friday night, is a mandatory event for, you know, most of the people mm-hmm. in the country get together with their extended families. So it's like Thanksgiving every week. Yep. So... For me, it's kind of similar here. So I'm a New Yorker. I'm a mom. I have, you know, big job. I love going out to restaurants in New York. I have a very hectic kind of, you know, life. But um, it's very important for me to be home for Shabbat and to enjoy a meal that was made from scratch and to enjoy it with friends that became family. Yeah. So, and and so that Friday night tradition, and does it extend into Saturday as well? At my home, not so much. Right, because you're busy. You've got <laughs> kids and you've got like gymnastics or whatever going on. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice to, to have that in the calendar every day or every week, a meal at home. Yes. Very cool. And even, you know, it could be a Shabbat picnic. Right. It shouldn't right. be now like, you know, like a multi-course. No, it doesn't have to be yeah. super fancy. Yeah. A few more questions because I, I really sure. I want to tap into... Back to Tel Aviv. Let's let's go. Let's just go there. I want to hear some restaurants <laughs> because I feel like it's a city that doesn't get written about as a restaurant city. You know, we get there's all the the, the history of Jerusalem nearby, but there's also, you know, you've got Jaffa happening down the road. But like Tel Aviv as a whole is a beautiful restaurant city. I would love to get your take on some of a favorite restaurants, and you're going to be heading there soon, and you're there often. So, oh, there are so many. Um. One place that immediately come to mind is Ibn Ezra. Which, oh my gosh! Have you been there? Oh uh, yes, I have. So great. But what's your take on that? Oh I'm my gosh! Curious For a about kosher that. restaurant, I mean, it's truly incredible. So you 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 speak first. You tell me what you're going to say. Okay. So yeah, so it's a, a meat focused 
happened to be kosher restaurant. Happens to be kosher, right? <laughs> um, I so Elran, the chef. I feel that if God would know how to cook, it probably <laughs> would be <laughs> something similar to the way Elran cooks. It just, <laughs> um, I love, the, you know, the start, right? Like you. You go there. First of all, it's important to explain the setting that, again, it's so simple. It's small. Um, it's on the corner of the street. It's kind of in Florentine, but like off to the edge a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Near Shuklevinsky. And just like this variety of flavors. So at the beginning, you get like all like tiny tastes of um, this cooked tomato and pepper salad and a really good um chicken liver mm-hmm. and fresh herbs and tahini and this really perfect homemade bread and you move into meats from the grill and again it could be super simple but then you get all of these more elaborate plates on a recent visit they had um, a stuffed celery root that was stuffed with ground chicken yeah. in this lemony tangy Sauce. I had a celery root at Duck one time that was like stuffed as well. Beautiful. Celery root isn't isn't slept on a little bit, I gotta say. I I agree. Yeah. Like I, I love it. And and you just mentioned Doc. This is one of my favorite places. Um it's a restaurant by a Saf Doctor. He has two other restaurants, A B, which I love, and Achim. And he is so much intelligent in his food and everything. I love like this almost juxtaposition between how simple the setting is and all of his restaurants, Doc, A.B. and Achim, and the plates, right, yeah. that are so fine. Um, so I love, I love his places. If I want something that is more like nicer upscale i really love pronto mm-hmm. by chef david frankel it used to be an italian restaurant and um in recent years he really changed his um offering to be way more local mm-hmm. and new israeli see new israeli you say something I feel like new American cuisine happened around the turn of the century, around 2000, and really was crystallized. I feel like Israel might have a new Israeli. It's like less formalized, more farm-driven. I don't know. Like, I love that you just use that term. I don't think I've ever heard that, actually. Interesting. Um, yes, I like when I go to these restaurants, to David's restaurant and mm-hmm. to Asaf's restaurant, and even if we're thinking about bakeries like Amita, Mm. This is definitely in New Israeli, right? Because on the menu you have borekas, but um, Michal and Anna's version of borekas would be stuffed with anchovy and yep. sage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, super cool. I I I stopped by there as well. So I feel like uh, no, but give me your take on Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, I I went there. I had a braised chicken that was incredible. That I, I like. I really like Azura in in Jerusalem. So his father ran that restaurant at the market, and I've I've gone by. I think I've been there. Maybe I've been there only once actually. But I I think um, Ibn Ezra to me, if it was in New York, it would be like the spot because it's 
got such a clear vision. It's it is a meat restaurant that happens to be kosher, but is not fully kosher. That is doing small plates. Salatim. Uh, I thought the breads as well. I agree with you fully. Beautiful breads there, and it's really cool. Like inside, it's indoor outdoor. And has a really nice design to it. And it's it's like in a reclaimed neighborhood. It's like kind of in the edge of Florentine and Levinsky. Um, I love that meal. That was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. fun. Yeah. Where are you going to go? You're, you're heading there in a few days. Do you have something on your list? Do you have like a restaurant circled? Yes. Yes. So I'm going to a new restaurant. It's called Naifa. It's by um, um, a chef with the same name, mm-hmm. uh, Naifa Mula. And she's a, a woman, a Druze, a very interesting um, young chef. Mm-hmm. And this is her first restaurant. She worked in, in many kitchens. Um, I'm, I'm excited for that. Back to Asif, the restaurant there... Do you still rotate your chefs in and out? How does that work exactly? No, so interesting. So actually Naifa, the chef I just yeah. mentioned, she was a graduate from the previous concept. Got it. Um, but currently, no. So currently we have a very simple cafe that really serve many of the dishes on the menu, serve some of the recipes from our programs that are in relation to the library, mm-hmm. to the exhibition, to special public programs that we do. So we have a core menu, which is very simple and very typical Israeli mm-hmm. that we really try to to show, again, the diversity of this country and to offer something that is not pretentious, something yeah. that is casual um, and well done. But, you know, the interesting part is all the time to be in connection to the research. Right. And it seems they're so connected just physically. You're, you go walk up the stairs and you're in the library. You got walk down the hall and you're in the exhibit. And I just think it's, I'll link to it again in the show notes, the uh, Asif, if you're in Israel or in Tel Aviv, you should visit. It's, a, it's an incredible place. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Nama, we asked all guests on Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book and, and write this book and sell this book at your at a Asif, what would that book be? So I'm writing a cookbook. Let's go there. With Jewish Food Society and the refers that we mentioned um, with Artisan. And it's around Jewish holidays. Oh, beautiful. Well, tell me a little bit about it then. It will come out next spring. So we are really, it's going to be a dive in, very close look on different families how they celebrate different holidays. So we'll have Rosh Hashanah mm-hmm. for a different style, you know, um, from a Persian cook, from an Indian Iraqi cook, from an Ashkenazi from Toronto cook, um, and from a family from Buenos Aires. Oh, wow. So and you're going to go through a few of the holidays going through. I love that. That's such a cool concept. Thank you. I'll have you back to talk about that. That sounds so great. Nama Shefi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. That was fun. Eliza, it's three things time. What do you think? Three things? Yeah, I have have three things ready to talk about. What's your first one? My first one is that I have been on a quest this summer, as in every summer, to have the best pina colada. 
And I went to Connolly's out in the Rockaways for the first time over the weekend. Have you been there before? I have not been there. I know of it. And I'm like wondering what the crowd was like. Yeah, Connolly's is a Rockaways institution. It's kind of like an Irishy dive bar a block away from the beach. They have photos inside from their bikini competitions over the years. They all seem like they're Mm -hmm. from like 2006, maybe. And darts and really good piñas. And it was an interesting situation. I went to the beach for a friend's birthday and the skies just opened up and it started absolutely pouring, thunderstorming as soon as we got there. And so we kind of decamped to Connolly's with the rest of the Rockaways that was getting flooded on the beach. (laughs) Um, So it was all kinds of people there. Um, A lot of like people you'd see at the beach in New York. So I don't know, old time Rockaways people, hipsters, some families. You're such a fan of the, the New York beach experience too. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the New York beach experience and I had never been. So I had about like a really good time. They do a rum float on the pina it was definitely the best pina colada I've had in New York. Wow. Uh, and not just because of the experience, but there was something about like it was pouring rain. We got into my friend's Jeep. We like drove over at Connolly's. We like packed inside with everyone else. Like it just felt like a cinematic moment. And my only regret is that the next day they were doing the Mr. and Miss Rockaway competition oh at gosh. the bar, which has three categories, uh, talent, beauty and swimsuit. Oh, as, wow. As a separate category. Swimsuit, like best swimsuits. I think maybe the sign just got muddied and it was like a swimsuit competition yeah. but i didn't go back for it and i wish that i had how many did you drink just one because you know we were going like back to meet our friends yeah. on the beach but there was a moment after the first one when we started playing darts when i was like oh i could just i could stay here all day it's it's a real like how to a john wilson moment i feel like like Connolly's, i'm sure has made his way in the show i don't know if it has yet but it definitely should they also always have a tv playing baywatch inside apparently because wow. i saw it and i was like oh baywatch and my friend Casey that I was with, who was wearing a Connolly's hat that says, keep Connolly's Connolly's. So you know she knows the vibe. She was like, oh, it's always on. It seems like your approach here is extremely kind-hearted and earnest and not, uh, like, snarky and ironic. Oh, no, I'm being very—I feel like sometimes I have a dry delivery. I sincerely loved Connolly's. I love it. And I will be back. That's what I like about you, Eliza. You're just sincere and dry. It's great. Sincere and dry. (laughs) Although everyone was so wet that day. Yeah, definitely not that day. (laughs) What's your first thing? All right. This is going to—you're going to know this one. It's going to hit close for you because you're friends. But Emily Sundberg's Feed Me Daily newsletter, I fucking love it. And I'm going to link to it. You should listen—you should read it. It's definitely not a food stack, um, but covers food, youth trends, CPG, and media moves really, really well. Emily is this keen observer um, of all sorts of trends, including including short-form video and food, and how I, I would read it as the killer app for food media right now is maybe doing these short videos that we've been talking about on the show and off mic about the future of food media might be these short videos. Wait, what? What short videos? Like short form videos, like oh, like, like TikTok, like TikTok, Instagram Reels. Yeah. Um, what I like about Emily's observation is is really, it's you know what, she writes. Let me just quote her: because these people are making short, tight videos, there's nothing even controversial about them. No awkward kitchen banter, no overtly decorated home to hate on, no try hard jokes or attempt to connect with the audience. She really has tapped into something that I've been thinking a lot about. It's like what are people wanting right now when they're thinking about food media and food content, specifically cooking, and she's nailing it. It's the short-form video. Um, and, you know, it just goes back to what the way Emily covers media and food in this newsletter. It's super invaluable. I just really like her. Yeah, she's really smart. If you haven't listened to the episode we did together, I would 
obviously you have, but to a listener that hasn't, it's really interesting. And I think Emily has this background where she did social for the cut and she did ad side at Condé at BA. Like she really has seen a lot of different sides of the industry. And most of all, she just has a knack for finding the story. So I love her newsletter. Yeah. And it definitely has, we're mentioning it here because it has a real food beating heart to it, even though she covers a lot of youth culture trends, et cetera. Yes. What's your next one? My next one is I made Eric Kim's recipe for a tomato furikake sandwich recently. Oh, nice. And it was so good. And as someone that loves furikake and loves tomato sandwiches, like it had this, I had this moment where I was like, how have I never thought about doing this before? And I did turn it into a BLT, which was super good. So if you are trying to do something with your tomatoes, I would highly recommend just adding some furikake to your mayo. So basically the article in New York Times Magazine was a permission to add furikake to your BLT, essentially? Yeah, or maybe not a permission, but an endorsement. Right, yeah. um, and um, there is like a, a proper recipe, but you really, you know how to make a BLT or how to make a tomato sandwich. You're just adding your furikake onto the mayo on the bread. Um, and I added a little bit of red pepper flakes also. Uh, Define furikake so in your in your words. What's in the shaker? Well, there's lots of different kinds of furikake. Exactly. Yeah. The one that I was using is what I would consider to be the most basic. That is just um, nori and mm-hmm. toasted sesame seeds and salt and sugar. But they have you know so many different iterations out there. Bonito flakes. There's definitely some kind of like levels of seafood. Like salinity can change or salt level can change. Yeah, wasabi sometimes I've seen added wasabi, in. Yeah. I think it would be fun to try a couple different ones. But really that kind of classic one did did me great. Yeah, it's smart. Eric, a uh, reminder, great recipe developer um, as well as a writer. A real double threat there, Eric Kim. Mm-hmm. What's your next thing? I need another media thing. I, I mentioned this in the, in last Friday's Taste Newsletter, and I want to call it out on air. We just had Carrie Diamond on, the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb. And they're doing something cool that I think our listeners will be interested in. They're actually doing a WeFunder for Cherry Bomb. Um, and I love it. And I wanted to mention it because this is indie publishing at its best. I think Cherry Bomb is really hitting its stride right now. There's a new CEO. Um, her name is Kate Miller Spencer. And I'm going to link to this uh, in the show notes because it's important to support indie media. We're in this moment of, of real change in media. And it cannot be said enough that listeners like you out there who are interested in things like taste and also Cherry Bomb should support. And this fund, uh, WeFunder is a really great way to do that. Yeah, I saw it in the newsletter last week. I think it's really important to be supporting the kind of media we want to see in the world. Um, and I will have to check it out also. Definitely. Also, shout to Cakezine, a, a great publication in itself and an independent media to so support it. Support us. Yeah. Buy Humble Pie. Yeah, definitely buy the new issue. It's it's real great. What's your last one? My last one, actually, I, I, I witnessed Carrie Diamond while I was eating this. Oh, so yeah. it's re- it's relevant. Yeah. I was at um, my friend Maureen Karim's pop-up at Winona's earlier this week, which was really fun. And I think my favorite was actually the dessert that Abby Balangit did. Uh, Abby is like such a great recipe developer. Yeah. Her Filipino dessert cookbook, Mayumu, came out earlier this year. And she did dessert that was kind of like... To me, a spin on a pavlova, it was a disc of rose water meringue mm. in a pool of cardamom yogurt cream with wow. a mango curd kind of mango sauce on top. So on the menu, I think the way that Rainy referred to it was like a spin on uh, mango lassi. But to me, it was like a pavlova lassi. It was super fun. And as someone that like, I don't always love rose water. The f- balance of flavor is really like, yeah. was, it was perfect. Yeah, rose water is very tricky to cook with. And it's cool that you, you spotlighted that. What was Rini cooking? She did a bunch of different things. There was a really good ceviche that I liked. She did a cilantro pasta with short rib on top, which is a really like beautiful green, fresh pasta. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it's kind of the first of a string of pop-ups she's doing over in New York over the next month or so, which is, uh, I think, interesting. I've been noticing some more independent cooks doing yeah. that kind of like pop-up tour, so to speak. Pierce Abernathy did a ton of events in New York, I think, over the month of May. So yeah. I'm interested to see if more people are going to kind of go on tour in that sense, I even think, if it's in the same city. Yeah, touring is really smart. And just building their brand and reputation, is, it's definitely uh, road testing, literally, dishes that could potentially be made in a, in a brick-and-mortar restaurant, lower cost. And also, it's great just to engage with people who follow them on social. So I love it. It's super smart, and I hope there's more of them. Yeah, I think I think there probably will be. Do you have a last thing? I do. Um, in late October, specifically October 30th in Los Angeles, the LA Chef Conference is happening. I'm going to be there, and I just wanted to shout it out. It's a really cool—I've never been. It's This is the third year running, I believe. Um, and it's really—it's uh, an industry event uh, with some ticket sale, and I'll link to in the show notes. It's cool because it's its its really—it's bringing together the LA Chef community, which is definitely one of our, our, our strongest communities in the country. Um, folks like Ruth Royschel, Phil Rosenthal, Naisha Aaron. Tim Bill Addison and Courtney Store will all be appearing. Brad Metzger is the organizer and he's a great connector of talent in the industry. And um, I've just w- always wanted to go. I know Andrew Friedman's gone every year and, and podcasted from there, but I think LA is an exciting city. And this is a, a Monday in, in October that you probably shouldn't miss if you're in the industry. And I know we have many listeners who are. Yeah, that sounds like a great lineup. And I think it's interesting in a city like LA where there are so many great restaurants and they are like spread out all over the city um, to like have an opportunity for folks to come together. Great call. I think it is challenging sometimes. In, and even in New York, too, which is not as spread out, we just have less food events now. I mean, the pandemic was part of it, but just no one's really paying for them. And we used to, back in the day, 2015, 2016, used to be like the real heyday of like food festivals and events. And we'd see people and there'd be now it's a little more segmented. So I think a, an event like a chef conference um, is important. And and really, because we live our lives online, we keep, we keep a lot of things bottled in. So it's like good to actually say shit out loud. Yeah, and I bet there'll be good food to eat there also. I believe there'll be some good food. I would hope. I mean, L.A. is always great food, but thanks for sharing your three things, Eliza. Anytime. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.